Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Sevilla, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Sevilla, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Dan Bednarz about his excellent new book, East German Intellectuals and the Unification of Germany, an Ethnographic View, published by Palegrave in 2017. Dan, hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, it's wonderful to have you this morning. Um, we'd like to begin all these interviews by having you, the author, tell us a little something about yourself. Okay. Well, I'm a trained sociologist, although I, my PhD is actually in public policy analysis. My research interests have always been, from my dissertation uh, through this book on Germany to the book I'm working on now, about how entities, organizations, etc., respond to decline, responses to decline. And it takes off sort of from Albert O. Hirschman's famous book, Exit Voice and Loyalty. So that's and that's basically who I am and, and what I've done in my intellectual career. And uh, uh, where do you teach now? I am retired and I'm now teaching at Bristol Community College. That's why I teach part-time there. Uh, and sociology courses? Or yeah, sociology. No, it's it's sociology. I did spend part of my career in public health, but I teach um, sociology courses and, and uh, mostly principles of sociology, which is a very difficult class to teach, and social problems, which is a very enjoyable class to teach. And uh, how do you find uh, teaching at a, a community college as opposed to a, a big research university? It's challenging. I'd say about, I had this conversation with a couple of colleagues at University of Michigan about a month ago, and, and they said, that's the same thing. And, and I said, well, you know, about 15 to 20% of the students could be at Michigan or any other uh, major and, and well-regarded university. About 30 to 40% of them, maybe 50%, are really good kids. And with with some encouragement, they can keep up. And then there's about 10 to 20 percent who, 10 to 15 percent maybe, who really shouldn't be there. They're there because they have no place else to go. And they're good kids, but, you know, if you're not prepared, it's just so difficult to step into that world uh, and start performing at, at a college level. Sure, sure. Um... So let's turn to the particular book at hand. Um, how did you come to write um, this book? Well, quite by chance, a serendipity. Uh, in 1990, I went to Berlin with uh, my wife, my then wife, and our two children, and she was on sabbatical and was invited to um, a research center in Berlin. And as a courtesy, they gave me an appointment too, and they said to me, oh, do whatever you want. And I was going to study 
how the introduction of personal computers, which was just entering the world at that time, would affect uh, organizational structure, power interactions in Germany. But the first day I was there, I found myself quite by chance invited into East Berlin, which was only going to exist for six more weeks, which is six weeks before the unification. And I was invited to speak to a group of scholars studying English at the, at the Academy of Science. And that's how it got going. I went there and spoke to them, and we really got along well, and they all wanted to talk to me for two reasons. One is I could speak English, and they all wanted to learn English, native English, even though it was American, not British English. And they wanted to tell their story about what was happening to them, uh, how their how their identity and careers were being upended. They didn't use those terms, but they were just talking about the venda, the turn, and how it was affecting their lives as East German intellectuals. And so I, after a few weeks of going to the class and having coffee with them, et cetera, and speaking to colleagues in West Berlin at the Institute, I discovered that there was no one studying these people, which astounded me. I'd always had an interest in the sociology of science, and, and not only was no one studying them, for the most part in the West, these were despised people because they were considered uh, communist apologists and, you know, that, that corrupt people, etc. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I was, I was very struck by um, the when you were talking to these people, um, their constant use of the word, the turn. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if you can describe to our listeners uh, what you mean by this, what they meant by this, um, and yeah. how they sort of manifested in their minds and how, and how it sort of yeah. impacted their day-to-day -day, um, yeah. So this, yeah, yeah, this, this concept, the turn, was presented to me. They start talking about the turn, the turn, in that first meeting with them. And, and I said to, to the teacher afterwards, what's the turn? She said, oh, it's the turn away from socialism towards capitalism, and it means change. It means the massive change, but they call it venda, turn. And so everyone used this concept, the turn, and they also use another concept, upvicklung, which means, it's a little hard to translate, but it means unwinding, liquidation, uh, winding things down, shutting things down, dismantling. But Venda is, is the term, although some of them ob objected to the term Venda, they said it was really a takeover, uh, and so they would use this word Abwicklung, but they never used any, a German word for takeover. But Venda was, was the term that came to be, uh, if, if you ask any German the Venda, they know exactly what you're talking about fall of the Berlin Wall, which several months later led to the unification of Germany. Okay, and um, was this something they 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 constantly uh, spoke to you about, or? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> yes, because it was the absolute center of their existence. The Academy of Science was going to be closed down by, by agreement in the treaty, the unification treaty, the Academy of Science with 26,000 employees was to be closed on December 31st, 1991. Uh, Two-thirds of the people there would be outright dismissed. One-third would be, um, after being so-called evaluated, would be given contracts, two- to three-year contracts, which possibly might be renewed, to either move to a university or to move to a research institute uh, a couple institutes remained in East Berlin, but most of them were dispersed throughout West Germany. Um, so that's that's why they were... And, and, of course, socialism had come to an end, and their dream of a socialist world had come to an end, and they were being reviled by most West Germans, not all, but by most West Germans as inferior, not real academics, uh, they'd wasted 40 years under socialism and told, now you have to become, if you want to be successful, you need to become like a West German. Um, I wanted to ask you about this West German uh, resentment. Um, 
And most of the people that you interview, you know, make it very clear that they know that they're resented uh, by many in West Germany. Um, how did they deal with that? Um, how did they fe feel about West Germans? Um, did they see it as a prospect that was going to make uh, unification a lot harder for them? Um, yeah. You know, how did they? How did they? How did they deal with this? Okay. Well, first of all, two thirds of the, uh, or three fourths, I think, I'm not quite sure, but a large, large majority of the intellectual class of East Germany was utterly opposed to rapid unification. They wanted a process that would take five to ten years. So, um, and the way they dealt with it, well, a small number of them, at least in my experience, basically, if I can use a colloquialism, they sucked up to the West Germans um, and would say that they would renounce socialism and, and go through all these prostrating acts. Um, that, I think, was a small amount. Another group, uh, also rather small, but simply said, I will not renounce socialism. And some of them left the country, and some of them were quite well accomplished in their work. But an, un, an unwritten rule of the unification was you had to renounce socialism to get ahead in, in the unified Germany. Um, and then there were others who just said, well, we lost the Cold War. And this is the way things happen when you lose. You get stigmatized. You don't get to do the stigmatizing. You get stigmatized. And they were very um, adult about it, is what way to put it. They didn't like it, but they accepted it. And also, you have to realize that I think, uh, I don't remember the exact percentage, but something like 60 or 65 percent of the people in East Germany had relatives in West Germany. So, it, you know, it was complicated, uh, and some of them said there were West Germans who understood what was happening to them and were very supportive. But in general, the West Germans, uh, because of a, the threat to the West German identity, most West Germans looked down upon East Germans as primitive, country bumpkins, feral children, that sort of thing. Would you say that uh, the majority of the people that you spent time with were, were true believers in socialism or sort of socialism because they had no other alternative or to or career or they had career goals, you know, that required their mm -hmm. sort of support of the party, open support yeah. of the party. Uh, most of them were true believers, although they did not believe in East Germany, East German socialism <laughs> by the end. Uh, I found very few people who supported the East German state, but most of them, I would say at least 60 to 70 percent, did believe that socialism was the future of the world, capitalism would would crash, not socialism. So they had many debates about what actually happened, what what had really occurred. Okay, but yes, they they and, and you can see it in their character the way they thought about uh, their activities in the world, uh, about other countries. Um, many West Germans found them uh, inexplicable in their concern for other people and thought it was some kind of ruse they were putting on. But they really had communitarian values, socialist values. Um, what were some of the, the reasons they pointed to as to why socialism failed? Um in East Germany, particularly, yeah. maybe more broadly. Well, they saw East. This, this is a modal description because there would be people who would disagree. Mm -hmm. But they saw East Germany as a satellite of the Soviet Union. Uh, and when when Gorbachev came in, they were elated. Uh, and then they realized that the East German government, which was composed mainly of men who had fought Stalin, in, 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 not fought fought for Stalin, fought Hitler in the Second World War, these were old men, uh, basically said to Gorbachev, we will not um, loosen up. Um, so that's, but, but the fundamental problems were economic and political, um, but largely economic. Um, and so they they saw the, the, the beginning demise of the Soviet Union and the loosening up Gorbachev instituted as basically 
releasing the dam of pent up frustration. And of course, many East Germans thought they were there was going to be a third way, but they were going to have a chance, not like Clinton and Tony Blair's third way, but their third way of reviving what they would call a true form of socialism. Some of them even wanted to take aspects of capitalism, which West German communists <laughs> were appalled at. Mm. But uh, so, you know, it's complicated. But yeah, that, that's how they, they they saw that. That's how they saw that. And um, was there anything in particular that they were excited about in terms of unification? Um, maybe just as simple as being able to travel to East to West to see their families. That's about it, traveling. Um, most of them, most of them felt they had a very clear understanding because they had been trained as socialists. So they thought they would say, sometimes directly, but most of them said, we're being taken over, we're being colonized, this is the way capitalism works. And that's, that's what basically happened to them, actually. Um, so it, it was a great irony. They had this, this intellectual worldview of socialism, Marxism, to understand the world, and it was explaining to them what was happening. But what it had failed to do was to say, why were the capitalists taking over and not, why had capitalism not failed? That was a huge, huge problem they had at that time, understanding. Yeah, I noticed in the interviews that they, um, you know, that a lot of them talked about how the rush of consumer goods coming into East Germany mm -hmm. had not been good for them. Yeah. Um, you know, that capitalism is the, you know, an economy of two thirds. Um, and I, I two -thirds was. Two thirds society. Yeah. yeah, a two thirds society. I was, I was struck by, um, even though uh, capitalism had sort of won the day, um, just how confused they were um, by it. Yeah. Um, and I also wanted to ask, you mentioned, uh, Francis Fukuyama in your book. Um, and I wanted to know a little bit more about, <clears throat> were they really familiar with his work on the end of history? Um, did they ask you about it? Did they want to respond to it? Um, yes, yes, they did ask about it in one of the classes, um, because I would I would go to these English language classes and and the teacher would uh, usually for part of the class they would say well we're going to have Professor Bednar speak now and and you're going to hear how an American person speaks English and this was very valuable to them because the colloquialisms I would say they want to know what does that mean but one of the requests they made was um, to give my understanding of Fukuyama and so we talked about that and one of the classes and um, because his thesis was very popular I think his article his first article was published in the spring of 1989 and then several months later the wall falls and then the book was coming out and everybody in the West was was talking about the end of history capitalism has won communism is defunct not even worth a discussion anymore etc so th there were th there was that Explicit discussion, you know. Um, and, and how did they they view his sort of take on it? Did they was it scornful almost, or um... no? No, they were confused. Now oh. I didn't talk to some of the more more high powered economists and historians, but the people in that class were were confused in the sense that they thought he might really be right, and that they had lived these sort of purposeless, meaningless lives for the past 40 years, although most of them didn't. They actually got into an argument in the class with each other. <laughs> they started arguing about Fukuyama and whether socialism has failed and why it has failed. But at that time, it was a very confusing topic. But some said, for instance, socialism didn't fail, the people failed. And, you know, there's that old Berto Breck joke about we're going to dissolve the people, right? And yeah. Start over. And start over. Uh, so, yeah. And, and some of them said, well, this is really complex. It's too early. Uh, one said to me, don't worry, capitalism's going to fail too. <laughs> it's just going to take a little while longer. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a, a wide variety of, of opinion about what had happened. Um, so now I want to switch gears on you just a little bit. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So uh, many of the people that you talk about, or interview, excuse me, um, talk about the role of the Stasi in their lives um, yeah. and how they always yeah. they had this sense that they're always being watched. Um, I want to talk about um, what they told you about life in a police state. I mean, they clearly recognized okay. they lived in a in a police state. Um, right. Um, their feelings about the Stasi, how their Stasi, how the Stasi sort of motivated or changed their behavior and their way of life mm-hmm. and so on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you want me to say a bit about that? Yes, please. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, I was struck that at the uh, Academy, uh, I met a few people who were terrified of the Stasi. Um, and I suspect that at least one of them had been forced to be a, a spy on his colleagues. But most of the people I met had this sort of, they they treated the Stasi like, you know, what we call in America the third rail. Like, if you avoid it and don't touch it, you're okay. (laughs) And uh, they knew there were boundaries, and they knew there were things they couldn't do. And like the one lawyer who said, we wrote this report, and, and my boss, even though he was sick, was called in to change it. Um, and so they knew there were things, places they couldn't go, but most of them had adapted ways to avoid the Stasi, like they would change topics or the Stasi could come to them and they could actually say to the Stasi, oh, I really don't want to help you with that. And there, there would be no repercussions, at least that's what they told me. Um, so it was a very complicated relationship, but they all said, if you got in trouble with the Stasi, you were in very big trouble. Okay? They were all very clear about that, that if you got on the wrong side of them, things could be very, very bad for you. Um, and it would range from some complaining uh, bitterly about what was going on, like one biologist uh, saying, we, we never talked about real issues, ecological issues, to others saying, I just avoided topics, and and I and I think a few of them were actually Stasi collaborators. No one ever admitted that to me, but I think a few of them, a few of them were. But they had their ways of coping with that. What impressed me most about them was most of them really viewed themselves as intellectuals and scholars fighting against the system as best they could. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this, um, particularly the biologist, because uh, that, that struck me. He was very open about how he felt the state had yeah. stifled his research. Um, yeah. And I wanted to know more about, was that a common feeling amongst um, many of the people you interviewed? You know, because they, they did view themselves uh, clearly from your interviews as scientists, as intellectuals sort of first. Um, and I want to know how they, you know, juxtapose okay. that with their well, life in a... In a more repressive state. Yes. Well, he was in an, an applied field. He, he was a very, very smart man, very passionate man, and he 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 was concerned about ecological destruction. Okay, and East Germany did a lot of that with you know the coal and the way they because they were it was all geared toward economic production. Now, other natural scientists I met, like in chemistry, physics, etc., they said. We had very little contact with the Stasi because they didn't understand what we were doing. They just let us do our work. Um, In the social sciences, of course, those were considered the hot disciplines, and they were fairly tightly controlled. Um, So I heard from them about, you know, women's studies, like one example. Uh, There there were no real women's studies because there were no problems for women. (laughs) You know, things like that. So they were controlled, and philosophy was highly controlled, history. But yet, they, the ones I met said, well, we were socialists, and we could, and there were ways, there were different times throughout the history of the GDR when certain things could be said that weren't repressed. But the one insight I got from them was that many things could be said inside the institutes in, in discussion, and the, the the prohibitions or the censorship came in if people tried to publish those things or tried to speak about them outside 
of the Academy of Science, then the, then you would get in trouble with the government and the Stasi. Okay. Um, yeah. So I I I want want to try to make clear to the people listening, like what kind, how the state, how they function within this state. Um, you know, and yeah. I think you make a good point that they could have internal discussions about certain yeah. issues, but you know, publishing was the problem. Um, yeah. I mean, did they, did they view life in, in, in East Germany as sort of living in a, in a, a, a real repressive state? Um, what, what kind of reforms did they want, if any? Well, that's a good question because, see, the intellectual class had a very uh, ambivalent status in East Germany. On the one hand, they were privileged because all they had to do was go to the office every day and at the academy, no teaching, no responsibilities, just do research. So there were quite a few people there who did nothing. They, they just had a job because everybody had a job in East Berlin. But there were many people there who were scholars and were actually trying to do work. And they felt that, toward the end anyway, they felt that they were trying to make a better world through the, through the worldview of socialism. And, um, they didn't, it, it, it's just, they knew they were controlled, but they would talk about it with each other and they knew that some of their colleagues were, were reporting uh, to the to the government, to the Stasi, and it also varied from institute to institute because some of the institutes were run like military institutes, you know, basically by people very tight, very connected to the Stasi, but all institute directors had to be connected to the Stasi, but other institutes were run as academic institutes where there's a lot of intellectual freedom. Now, I don't know how how many, what, what the percentage would be of either or, but I was told that uh, an intellectual's life could be rather pleasant and, and fulfilling or rather difficult and uh, not fulfilling and difficult and just onerous if one were in the, one of the militarily run institutes. You mentioned, and you mentioned this in the book as well, um, sort of their sort of strange place in East German society, because the yeah. heroes of socialism yeah. are the workers. Um, right. And I, I want to know if any of them talked to you about relationships they had with with workers, um, either members of their family, friends. Uh, you know, did they uh, interact? Most of them I, yeah, yeah. I think most of them did not have much interaction with workers, maybe where they lived in some of the apartment buildings. They had great sympathy for the workers, uh, they were constantly telling me, as bad as our situation is, it's going to be far worse for the workers. The workers have really been duped by Mr. Cole and the West Germans. They're only finding that out now. I'm speaking about in, in, in the year 1990 and 91. But I don't think that many of them, like academics anywhere, <laughs> had a whole lot of working class friends. Mm. Um, and did any discuss experience with you where they had workers openly resenting them for their sort of cushy jobs, you know, their office jobs. They don't have to yes, work in a coal yes, mine. Or... Yes, I got that a lot, that the workers viewed them as privileged and sort of, I don't know, effeminate or effete is the word, but not getting their hands dirty, not having to do manual labor, um, and viewing them as an isolated, privileged class of people. Okay. Um, what we call pointy heads here in the United States, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I was I was sort of struck by um, or interested to hear your take on on that relationship um, because you have this group of people who clearly has an affection for the workers as sort of a socialist idea, but um, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear they didn't know a lot of workers. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they traveled in their own circles. Right. Um, so in your book, you have a number of very, very wonderful interviews um, with many different characters. Um, I assume the names yeah. have been changed, correct? Uh, only two or three names are real in the book. And those people explicitly ask me to, to use their real name. Otherwise, the names have been changed. Okay. Yes. Um, 
So, I mean, obviously we don't have time to talk about them all, but there is there's a few that I'd like to um, have you elaborate on. Um, okay. The first is Lily, the teacher of the class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, what was she like? Um, how did she? What was her, How did she teach? Um, what did she really find okay. important about you being there? Because um, she was very th- enthusiastic about you being there. Um, yeah. Well, the first thing about Lily is that she had really no political views. She was the kind of person who uh, really liked people, was very friendly, and when we talked about socialism, she said, well, that's just the system I grew up under. And, and she was pretty much an apolitical person. Um, she was extremely friendly. She was about 50 years old at that time. She was quite remarkable because she could speak perfect British English uh, and had never been out of East Germany. She trained herself by listening to the radio and records, <laughs> um, and she was always trying to improve her English. Uh, she was very uh, well-liked by the students and very helpful, and uh, that's and, and she told me anything I wanted to. I uh, asked her once, why don't you do you think I'm from the CIA? And she said, no, I know you're not because the way you got here and uh, you just, she said, you just, you don't ask CIA kind of questions. <laughs> Pretty much what she said. Um, why was so learning English so important to her? Um, yeah, well, she went against the trend because she, she also knew Russian, of course, because everyone had to learn Russian. <laughs> but she said she did not like to speak Russian and she, for some reason, became infatuated as a child listening to the BBC on the radio. And I think she, she told me, she said to herself, I'm going to learn how to speak that language. And that's what she did. And, and there was some pressure. You could study English in East Germany, but it wasn't really encouraged. And then once she started to excel at it, then she became valuable to the East German government because she, she was so good at understanding it and, and speaking it. Um, was there an, an affinity for American culture? Because um, they, I mean, one of the things I was also struck by mm-hmm. was that how excited they you were, they were, you were an American, specifically, not right. British, not, you know, Irish, but yeah. an, an American. Um, I mean, I, I, I understand they didn't get a lot of Americans traveling to East Germany, um, right. but did they view Americans differently than they viewed, say, British? Um, they definitely viewed you differently than they viewed West Germans, but... Yeah, well, this is interesting because they were trained uh, during the times of the GDR to be highly suspicious of Americans. Americans, of course, the seat of empire and capitalism. And that surprised me uh, that they were so interested. But for whatever reason, and maybe because of the trauma they were going through when I met them and the way I spoke to them, and that my politics would be recognizable to them as sort of left-wing politics, although I don't consider myself that. But for all those reasons, and the fact that I listened to them and I didn't tell them things, I listened to them, they sort of spread the word among each other that there's this American and he's listening to people. Um, There were some who didn't want to talk to me, a few, who just wouldn't even acknowledge my existence, but they were only two or three in each class. So I don't think they in general had a great affinity for Americans, but they certainly wanted to know about American culture. And at the time, they many of them thought, you know, it would be America might be someplace they, they might end up. Um, so your question is good. I don't have a firm answer because it, it struck me that they were so gracious and um, outgoing with with an American. Yeah. As I was reading the book, I was, I was struck by that as well. Um, just how, how, how excited they were. Um, did in general, did it take them a long time to warm up and want to speak with you? I mean, you mentioned a few that wouldn't at all. Um, but, but generally speaking, uh, was it, I mean, they, you know, they, they were that first class, uh, they were just really enthusiastic and see, I grew up in, in an ethnic community, a Polish ethnic community in Detroit. And a lot of the behavior, I think, 
nonverbal behavior that I saw among the East Germans was very, very familiar to me because there were lots of Polish people who had just come to the United States in Detroit. And I think that there was some kind of nonverbal communication going on there. And then once they would say, oh, I want you to speak to my friend, well, if a friend recommends you, uh, then they're willing to talk. And they would say, he will listen to you. That's the main thing they would say to their friends. He will listen to what you have to say. And they were dying to have someone listen to what they had to say. Yeah, was there, you know, I, I was struck by that too, that uh, a lot of the people that you were dealing with in your book were very concerned about getting their stories out. Were they, were they concerned that their stories were going to just be washed away with unification yes. because of, you know, West German attitudes towards towards them and towards socialism and, you know, they had lost. So were they worried that their history was yes. going to be swept sort of under the rug? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, of course, you know, it took 25 years, not that I tried for 25 years, but um, at the time when I tried to get the book published uh, in those, in, in 92, 93, there were no publishers interested. It was like, well, who cares about what these East Germans think? So, yes, I think they were, they felt they wanted to say something that had the chance of being recorded and and expressing their views because no one wanted to hear their views and expressing their take on what their lives had meant, what their lives as GDR citizens had been like. Um, did any of them uh, really talk to you about moving to the United States, particularly if they were part of the group of people who lost their jobs? Um, did they see that as a, a viable option for them to move? Maybe not just the United States, but other parts of the West. Yes, yes, some did. Uh, I met some scientists who were in, I think, uh, what we call robotics, and they they were young, and five or six of them at an institute, and they were very different from the others. They had multiple job offers, and some were in the United States, some were in the United Kingdom, uh, and they were all planning to leave the country. Other people were just saying. I want to get out of Germany because I don't feel like I don't feel like a German. I'm an East German. I need to get out of here. That sort of thing. Uh, and there were a few who who did leave, um, as, as I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, but th th they had options. Most of them didn't have options, but some did. Um, what kind of jobs did the ones that didn't have options? What kind of jobs did they take? I noticed I'm, I'm one of them became cab driver, right? And uh... Yeah, well, odd jobs. Yeah. Um, so quite a few of them, I'm told, I don't have data on it. Uh, they, they all spoke and wrote good German, which is, you know, it takes a long time <laughs> with mm. the cases and, and, the, and the genders. Uh, so um, when businesses came into East Germany, selling insurance, opening other kinds of businesses, many of them had jobs opportunities to work in these businesses because the German was so good. So quite a few did that. Um, and again, some left the country. Uh, I know some who went into private industry because they were very well trained in math and science. And uh, they were hired at very low wages, which West Germans didn't like. But they were highly trained, and they could be hired at low wages. That's that's sort of a capitalist dream, right? So, and there was this oversupply of people. So, that's what what happened to them. And, and again, one third of them were given contracts, but there was a a slow attrition. Every three years, a, a few more or less would be let go, let go, let go. And my guess is that there weren't that many of all the people who were working in. East German universities and at the Academy of Science, there weren't that many who lasted more than five or ten years um, in, in, in the new West German intellectual system. They, they had to find some other some other option. Um, was that because of conflict with their colleagues or ideological differences, um, just an I, untenable I, working situation? I don't know. Um, I think it's probably because um, th there was an oversupply of West German PhDs at that time, 
And so that was one of the pressures in the East. Oh, there's all these opportunities at the East German universities. And so many of the West German uh, academics with PhDs who were unemployed or underemployed suddenly had full-time faculty positions they could take. So, but why people were dismissed, not given new contracts, there could be a lot of reasons. Sure. But certainly there's this undertone of, East Germans are inferior, or East Germans are second class. That and that exists to this day. Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, okay. Uh, to sort of turn back to the specific uh, individuals, um, I think my, the one I found most interesting, um, and even I found her very charming, was uh, Marie, the library assistant. Um, oh yeah. Um, can you talk about her character? She was sort of seemingly shy at first, um, yeah. but you really got her to open up and talk to you about a lot of things. Um, yeah. So uh, describe to our listeners about her, um, about her co- her background, her family, communists, correct? Um, yes, yes. Well, she was, she was interesting, and she, and she knew this because she had grown up in West Berlin, there, what was West Berlin, and was a child during the Second World War. Um, and, uh, I think her father had died probably in the war and sometime in the early fifties, when she was a teenager, her mother said, uh, we're communists. We're going to move to East Berlin. So all you had to do was move, you know, there was no wall, nothing like that. But this gave her having been raised in West Berlin and gone to school there for, for into her teen years, it gave her what she thought was a different perspective on things. And so she always found herself at odds with the East German government. She was very intelligent. I think she spoke three or four languages. She was good in math. Um, and then she she wanted to tell me this story about how it was she became this library assistant <laughs> at, at this one institute, which was just like a secretarial job. And so she told me about her contact with the Stasi and in um, contact with people throughout her education who one of the criticisms East German uh, bureaucrats would make of people is um, you don't you don't accept the party line you, you you think in your own way as an individual and that's incorrect so she was she was ambivalent about the term. She thought it was going to be good for her children, but uh, she was about 50 also, so she thought it was probably too late for her. And I regret I was unable to find her when I went back to Germany. Um, I don't know what happened to her, but I was unable to find her. But she was interesting just because she had lived in West Berlin and come to East Germany. And she never thought about leaving East Germany. She wanted it to become a socialist state. Yeah, I wanted to ask about generations because, I mean, one of the things that did strike me about her story was that she actually thought it would be good for her children, even though she was a committed um, socialist. Um, So a couple of questions, I guess, with this. Um, Were the vast majority of people that you interacted with older, over 45, um, say? Um, I, I, there was a variety of people. I would probably say probably half or more were in the, were in middle age. We're in middle age. Okay. Most most were in middle age, uh, but I, I did talk to quite a few younger people under thirty, um, and only a few that were quite old that were near near retirement. Most of them were somewhere between thirty and fifty five. I think. I, would it be safe to assume that the younger people were more willing to give? capitalism a shot um or were they committed Um, were they committed socialists themselves i mean i mean if it's too general of a thing to say that's yeah well i I think the younger ones knew that that their prospects for for success for career success were far greater because there was an unwritten rule that if you're over 40 you're not going to be given a job you just have to go find something else Your, your intellectual career is over and that was pretty steadfastly enforced, unless you had what they call vitamin D, which means you were in an old boy network. Um, 
So most of the younger ones actually had opportunities. Uh, they would joke about it, saying they're going to re-educate us. <laughs> but they had opportunities to go to West, West German universities and earn degrees. Uh, and, of course, they would be subject to re-socialization. Mm. Um, but I guess my question is, were they, by and large, enthusiastic about it or no? Were they the same sort of uh, as the older people? This, yeah, they were ambivalent because, ambivalent. on the one hand, they knew I have a chance to go and be educated further and to have a career. I'll have a degree from a West German institution. Now, I could have a career, but they didn't want to give up their identity as East Germans. So it, it posed certain problems for them, but they were certainly the ones I knew they were going to, they weren't going to turn down the opportunity to continue as academics. Sure, right, because that was their, their dream. Um, right. Yeah, but I was just curious. And, and, oh, no, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, for Germans, once you start down the academic track, uh, you don't turn back. And this was emphasized to me by quite a few of them, that, you know, just say, oh, I left graduate school and I started a business. So if you go into an academic career, you are considered a massive failure if you don't stick with it. Okay, so, yeah, they have that pressure. Yeah. On them. So okay. Yeah. So all right. I good. Yeah. I was. I was curious as to how the generational differences uh, impacted the way that they viewed the the turn. Um, so you went back in 2014. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You mentioned earlier that you know that there there's still even to this day some prejudices between West. You know, the Western Germans still view Eastern Germans as somehow a little less. Um, yeah. How did the East Germans that you re-interviewed, how have their thoughts on the term changed in, well, it's 24 years? Well, most of them felt that um, the capitalism was a very hard and demanding system. They had, um, they weren't nostalgic for the GDR, but they had a lot of fond memories of working at the academy, interestingly enough, because they felt that the presence of the Stasi could be managed in a certain way, but the pressures they were under in the West German system, they found onerous, like constantly looking for new contracts, um, to three-year contracts to continue their careers, or if they were in, like, one was at Potsdam University, she said, I teach about social inequality, and I have to be extremely careful about the way I present it in the classes. Uh, it's almost like being back in, in DDR times, watching what you have to say. So they were very keen about uh, saying that the Western system has, a scientific academic system has problems, and um, they're not really that different from what happened in the GDR, which is quite, quite amazing kind of comment, but that's that's how they felt. Um, and most of them uh, have positive feelings about what the GDR was about and negative feelings about the status of Germany right now. You know. uh, yeah, did they, did they do a lot of talking about current German politics? Well, uh, only to say that most of the issues that were swept under the rug about unification remain under the rug. For instance, the displacement of people in the eastern part of Berlin and what was East Berlin, they've been, you know, forced out due to gentrification, uh, that is rising rents that they can't afford, uh, other issues like uh, there are no laws protecting people from being discriminated against for being East Germans. There was a famous case where a woman was rejected for a job and, and they wrote on her application, she's rejected, she's an East German, and somehow she got a hold of that and, and um, launched a, a lawsuit in, in typical German law. <laughs> the Supreme Court said, yes, you were discriminated against, but there's no law protecting you from being discriminated against, so nothing's going to be done. And this, of course, <laughs> these Germans, you know, really 
right? Well, yes, you were discriminated against, but so what? Uh, so they they've accommodated to it. They certainly accommodated to it. They all feel like Germans now, like it's their country. They don't have that problem of feeling, I can't say I'm a German, but they all have a great deal of, uh, it's nostalgia for what East Germany was in terms of feelings of solidarity and aspiring to have a socialist world. One of their main criticisms is the West is about making money and not much more, you know, and, mm. and this, this just, uh, is, it's no longer inconceivable to them, but almost to a person, they said, living 25 years under capitalism has made them realize how bad capitalism is. In fact, one of them in the book said to me, I really liked capitalism until I had to live under it. <laughs> he was in East Germany and said, I liked it, but now that I've lived under it, it's really not a good system. Interesting. Um, and did any of them discuss with you their feelings on Angela Merkel? Uh, some of them knew her. They they just see her, well, basically they see her as a politician. She's an opportunist, um, nice nice person personally, but uh, an opportunist who never really was a socialist. You know, her family is evangelical, and um, she was a member of the CDU in, in East Germany, which actually was allowed. So they don't view her as one of them, really. She just, I, I, at least this is my opinion. She's just someone who happened to be, happened to, to be born and lives in East Germany, but she really wasn't as they were uh, East Germans. Her, her degree was in physics, and um, yeah, they, they just see her as a, a, a typical kind of politician. Okay, so no, no strong feelings on her one way or another. No, nobody. Yeah. They didn't really talk much about her. It's just mm. like that's that's who she is. And they understand, you know, what politicians do and, you know, how she became, you know, I don't know if you know the story, I won't go into it, but, you know, how did she, how did she get where she was and, and you know, sort of um, undermining government coal at one point and stepping forward and, and all that. Mm -hmm. they, 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 didn't, they didn't spend much time talking about her to me. In fact, none of them even even mentioned her as best I can recall. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I was just, I was curious, that was just a curiosity. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, of course, yeah. She's East German. <laughs> right, because she's East German and she's a scientist um, and, you know, these are the right. people you're talking to. Um, mm -hmm. So, for everybody listening, um, what are one or two things that you want them to take away from your book? Um, it's a really fascinating book. It deals with a really fascinating question. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering what for you are the, are the big things, um, to take away well, from. Okay. Well, let's see. I would say, first of all, the, um, because this, this will bring us to what my next project is I'm working on now. There are certain, I think, universal ways people have of dealing with each other. And what happened there, so, so sometimes I say to people, what do you think would have happened if capitalism failed and the East Germans had taken over? <laughs> well, pretty much the same kinds of treatment. It would have been the West Germans who were stigmatized and the West Germans who were seen as, you know, feral children and country bumpkins. So there's that sociological dynamic, which dynamics, which I get into in the third part of the book, that victors, you know, treat the vanquished in a certain way, and it's not a good way. Uh, secondly, the issues that were unresolved uh, 25 years ago by the unification have not been resolved, and there's a great deal of resentment among East Germans about the way this happened. And I think, I'm not positive, but I think it's being transmitted to their children um, because the West Germans certainly felt well, once this generation of East Germans dies out, everybody will think of themselves as Germans, and then East Germany will just be a memory, but it won't have any, you know, so social significance in the consciousness of people. And I think that is not true, because if you look at uh, the economic status of, of the former East German states, you know, they're, they're not doing well. 
Um, and, you know, the AfD, right, the Alternative for Germany, uh, that political movement, mm-hmm. it's got its strength in East Germany. So I I can't go into it. We can't go into it now. I, I understand it. I think some of that can be traced, and perhaps a large part of it can be traced, to the fact that the unification was really badly uh, handled. The East Germans were basically told, shut up, you are now part of Germany, and the West Germans will decide. And, you know, things come back to haunt you. Mm-hmm. So that's, those are the, and, and I think I say in the book, what the East Germans and the West Germans know is that they they badly insulted them and, and badly mismanaged the unification process and what, and, and, and these issues remain unresolved and remain points of conflict um, in the society. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great and important point for people listening because you look at Germany now and you travel to Germany now. If you're not paying attention to those kinds of things, you wouldn't even notice. Uh, that's right. Right. You you know you see them as one country, unified country. Yeah. Um, and it's it's I think it's important to know that you know these issues are still there. Um, and they do contribute to things like the alternative for Germany. I think that those are mm-hmm. um, important takeaways. Um, so um, now that this project is done, uh, um, what are you working on uh, currently? Okay, so the, the book I'm working on now, and, and I'm actively working on I just got back from Detroit. It's about Detroit, and it's called Whose City Is This? An Ethnographic Account of the battle for the future of Detroit. Because just like East Germany, West <laughs> Germany, there, you know, Detroit was obviously went into significant decline. And now there are various groups trying to, uh, lay claim to the future of the city. And there's a great deal of, um, activity going on there because 40% of the city's not there anymore. It's burned down. Um, and so there are just a number of fact- factors going on, you know, uh, things about ethnicity, uh, race, um, whose city, and, and so this issue, whose city is this, is really resonating with the people I'm meeting because um, there's a 7.2 square mile area downtown which is being so-called redeveloped a renaissance. And it's basically, you know, this concept of creative class, mm-hmm. that concept? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's invite creative class people in here and let's do finance and let's have a lot of boutiques. We can sell fancy clothes and restaurants and gentrify the city. <laughs> that's, that's that Detroit. And then there's another part of Detroit where you have uh, lots of poor people, lots of land, and saying, once again, we're being isolated, left behind. Uh, we want to have a say about the city. And Detroit, many Detroiters, because it's over 80% African Americans, consider Detroit the black capital of America, like a Mecca, and they feel very disenfranchised. And, and so there's a lot of conflict and anger there about where the city goes. So that's the, the project I'm working on now. Well, it, it sounds fascinating, and I hope when you're done, no pressure, um, you'll come back <laughs> yeah. on the show and, uh, and talk with us about it, um, because I think it would be fascinating to hear more about, um, especially someone who lives in Washington, D.C., and, and sort of there's these kind of issues that go on here as well. Um, yeah. Um, I want to thank you for again for being on the show. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I really enjoyed your book. Um, I hope everybody listening enjoyed the talk. Um, and we will see everybody next time.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.